Chronic Illness Therapist podcast. This is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. In this episode, Dr. Anna Laura Ortega Biggs and I talk about Dr. Anna's philosophies around anger, how childhood shapes our experiences, and how our work as therapists greatly impact us just as much as we hope to impact our clients. Dr. Anna is a bilingual licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in San Diego, California. She completed her PsyD in clinical psychology and received training at both Stanford University School of Medicine and Palo Alto University. She has worked and trained in a variety of clinical settings, including community mental health, the Department of Veterans Affairs, Stanford Medical Center, public hospitals, and various community mental health clinics. Her research, clinical interests, and area of expertise include trauma, post-traumatic growth, grief and loss, destructive mind control, couples and marital functioning, race-based traumatic stress, and women's health, and has received extensive training in the use of evidence-based treatments for multiple complex clinical presentations. She has also developed expertise in treating underserved populations and disenfranchised individuals. Please welcome Dr. Anna Laura Ortega Biggs. So why don't you maybe start a little bit by telling us um, where you, how you got interested in um, chronic illness and working with that population? Um, anything that feels relevant personally or professionally, feel free to share. Sure. Yeah. So gosh, um, it's really funny or interesting, I guess, because as I was doing my training, I remember as a doctoral student, I remember a lot of times on interviews, I'd get questions such as, you know, what's a population that you're probably not great at working with? And I had a few answers for that. But one of them was, you know, patients who were, you know, chronically medically ill Mm -hmm. um, because I had anxiety about sort of not being around people, but just hearing about different sort of medical problems, particularly heart problems and things. It just made me really anxious because it really made me attuned to my own body. And I remember feeling like I probably wasn't going to be a very good fit. And it's really interesting to me now to see how much that has shifted over the course of the last 10 years. Um, I ended up training in different sites where I was just naturally exposed So I was at the San Francisco VA as a trainee and working with veterans, you know, became a huge passion of mine. And through that, I worked with, you know, men in particular at this, at this VA, I was with men only, but, you know, who had just had really pretty heavy, serious medical conditions. So that was kind of my introduction and my start. And that's what helped me become more comfortable. And then I was, um, in different placements for my pre-doctoral internship and my fellowship, which were all kind of behavioral medicine um, specialties where I worked with chronically medically ill women specifically. So the shift really went to women. And I also worked with a lot of pregnant postpartum women um, who had a lot of kind of comorbidities as well with some of these chronic medical conditions. So once I was doing that fellowship, I became very aware of just women's gynecological 
problems in particular, and I started to kind of recognize I have some of these symptoms. I wonder if I have some of these diseases and I've just been sort of ignored my whole life. And granted at the time, I think a lot of my conditions were probably still in a much more kind of livable, manageable place uh, where, you know, I wasn't necessarily missing, you know, really important functions or unable to really function, but, but that progressively shifted. And because of those experiences, I actually was able to really advocate for myself and learn a lot about the medical side of things and how tricky it is to navigate that and how, you know, the psychological meets, you know, that kind of the intersection of the psychological component and the medical component and how, how challenging it is to navigate both of those arenas as somebody who's having some sort of a complication medically. So through kind of my own infertility journey, um, which was really long and very, very painful, both physically and emotionally, I found out that I had both endometriosis and adenomyosis. Mm. Um, and so through that, I've done a lot of some, sort of my own kind of research, my own soul searching there, and then worked a ton now with chronically medically ill women who have just all different kinds of varying diseases or disabilities or medical problems. Um, most of whom have spent like me, you know, seven to 10 or more years just to try to get a diagnosis and then having to navigate all the many things that come with that. So yeah. that's sort of my, you know, it's, it's probably a longer, more complicated answer, but that's kind of my short, <laughs> more palatable version of kind of how I got to where I am now and, and why this has become so important to me. Yeah. So. The personal experience. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, that you had the anxiety about working with this population. And then as you, it, it sounds like it went hand in hand, you were working with them, you were getting more comfortable with it. You were then able to become more aware of your own body and be more comfortable with that and work through that. And it just sounds like it went back and forth um, and it grew on, on top of each other. Totally. You know, I just wasn't someone that dealt with pain very well. And I wasn't someone who dealt with having to see the doctor, you know, I just, it was, it was something that was very anxiety provoking for me. And so I knew, or I sensed that sort of sitting through and listening to that, that I just wouldn't be able to tolerate it, or I wouldn't be a good fit because it would just make me too anxious. So it's, it's, I just, if you had told me, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago that this would be such a passion of mine. I don't know that I would have believed, believed you, which, you know. Yeah. Are there any messages that you remember growing up with that you think other people relate to as well that led to kind of that anxiety about healthcare? I mean, I think it's, it's really hard for me to know sort of where this stems from. I know there's different theories about it just within my family. As an infant, I had a hernia. So I was only four months old and I had my first surgery as a four month old. And you know, when you're that young, they don't give you anesthesia. They don't give you really any sort of pain, you know, medication. And I was in Argentina, that's where I was born. So, you know, I don't even know what things looked like there then back in the eighties, but I know that it was from what my mom and dad share with me that I was in a pretty excruciating amount of pain. So I think my life sort of started that way. And I, I don't know. I mean, I can't know with any sort of certainty, but that's kind of where things I think sort of stemmed from. And I think that I just, um, I've, I always had a pretty serious fear when I was hurt or, or something was wrong. Like it just, I paired it with a fear and I just didn't manage it very well. And 
I don't know that the people in my life necessarily knew how to kind of handle it. So, yeah. you know, I'm sure just years and years of that, it all kind of piled on and it's not something I've spent a lot of time exploring, but as you're asking me these questions, I'm recognizing that would be interesting for me to understand a little bit better kind of how that this is all sort of shifted and developed for me. Yeah, no, that's really, um, I think enlightening just, I think we all have these early childhood experiences that we wouldn't put two and two together because no doctor ever, ever asks you, did you have a surgery when you were an infant? Did you, but as I do ask these questions to my own clients, I often learn sometimes way, way later in therapy, a year down the road that they had some experience when they were an infant that, you know, again, it feels so irrelevant because you don't remember it, but our body does. Right. Right. And um, so it's, it is, I think it's important that people do hear these stories and understand like our, our infant years are really, really important. Um, and we shouldn't dismiss them, you know, find, I really encourage my clients to talk to your parents, um, talk to your grandparents, whoever was there and just find out what happened. What were you like as a baby? Um, you know, and just, uh, honor and kind of respect the journey that you went through before you could cognitively remember that. Um, and then through somatic work is where I think a lot of that starts to um, the, the mind body piece of it all, um, where we can start to resolve some of the fears and anxieties. But I'm curious, what is your approach with clients? Um, you know, do you do more cognitive work? Do you do any body-based work? What is um, your go-to? Yeah, so I don't necessarily have sort of a, a one-size-fits-all approach. That's usually what I share with people when they're interested in working with me and sort of consulting to see if I might be a good fit for them. So I really, I work with a lot of people from very diverse backgrounds as well, um, just because, you know, I'm from another country, I speak two languages, and um, as a woman of color, I often get people sort of seek me out for that reason who are also, you know, women of color. So I think that for me, that is always one of the top considerations is I'm always trying to kind of figure out what are people sort of navigating outside of whatever the kind of main reason that they're coming to see me is. Um, and I really, I really like to kind of tailor my, you know, treatment to kind of fit each person's unique needs. I just think everyone's so different. So with that though, of course, there are certain things that I'm always drawn to. And for me, I'm very interested in, you know, systems. So family systems and just kind of the different community systems, cultural systems, sort of everything that's kind of contributing to supporting, exacerbating, making, you know, better or worse in whatever way, kind of the systems around each person and, and how they're supported and how they are kind of impacted by everything that's sort of happening around them socio-politically and otherwise. So I'm very interested in kind of learning about their families and, you know, some of their experiences growing up, but I'm also very invested in the here and now and how they're navigating, you know, their care with their doctors, um, how are their families supporting them, how are their partners supporting them, um, just kind of the intersection of sort of all the different things that, you know, they're kind of navigating in their lives and having to be faced with. So 
Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm not sure if that really completely answers your question, but it's tough for me because I don't really have this sort of one thing that I always necessarily do or that necessarily defines me. I'm, I've always been a pretty integrative psychologist. So I was just trained in, in lots of different modalities and by lots of different kinds of people and supervisors. So I think that I have always kind of approached each person with just a lot of curiosity and try to kind of start from there. It sounds like you take a relational approach and the person, the client comes first and, and what they're, um, what they're going through and that it doesn't, the technique doesn't really matter so much as the relationship in the room. Right. I mean, I always, you know, I always aim to, to keep things, you know, evidence-based and, and make sure that, you know, my approaches are, you know, that the science is sort of showing that these are effective approaches and, and I'm not ever like experimenting or doing anything, you know, wonky or new that mm-hmm. I think is, you know, just sounds interesting or fun for me, but I just, I like to just kind of see where they're each person's at at intake and, and then kind of go from there and, and collaboratively create a, a treatment plan based on their unique needs. So yeah. is there a particular question on your intake form that you find to be just the most enlightening or the most helpful for you personally as a clinician? Uh, that's such a good question. Um, let me think about that for a second. Sure. I have a really long intake form. Okay. So you tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah. So when people come to see me before they see me, you know, they do all my complete all my paperwork and I have these, you know, just like any of us, right. These really long winded consent forms. You have to cover all your bases. And then I have an intake questionnaire. Um, and I have everyone complete that before they see me and I read it before I do the intake because it helps me, you know, find potential red flags or things that would, help me kind of determine that I'm not an appropriate fit or, and, or just areas that I'm like, Ooh, this is really important. And that's not why they're coming to see me, but I want to make sure to address that. So my intake questionnaire actually does have a lot of medical questions on it. So I ask a lot about, I have like an entire page that's just medical symptoms or, you know, diseases, disorders, whatever word you want to use, disabilities, different things that are sort of listed on there. Um, and I, I ask for those, you know, questions like, do you have any of these symptoms or any of, you know, have you been diagnosed sort of any of these things? Um, so that's an important one. And I'm trying to think, um, what really stands out to me that I always kind of look for. Well, you know, interestingly, I think one of the ones that I usually get a lot of information from, I ask about people's, you know, sort of families, And I ask them to sort of list their family members, their ages, and, you know, what, you know, just kind of with one word, like describe the relationship. And so with that, you get a lot of interesting answers because it's pretty open-ended. So people can sort of write whatever they want. And I think that that usually helps me get a really good sense of how hard it's been for people to maybe navigate even just the most important relationships in their lives. And that can usually give me a sense of what their support looks like and what their other relationships might look like as a result of having to deal with some childhood traumas or really dysfunctional families or, you know, um, conflicted, you know, parental relationships or sibling relationships and things like that. So that's kind of one of the, that and kind of the medical questions are usually uh, ones that I'm paying pretty close attention to. Yeah. You're trying to make sure you, like you said earlier, go going toward figuring out what is going on around them, not just this, 
the presenting problem, which for people listening, you know, is when people come in saying, this is what I want to work on. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, this is what I want to work on, but how is everything around you affecting that problem? Or maybe even sometimes that problem isn't you real the client realizes through through your work together that the, that's really not even an issue almost at all and, and really it's this other stuff that's that's getting in the way totally no that happens a lot or that these are the things that they don't want to talk about but that they sort of recognize they probably need to talk about um yeah. and so of course you know don't force anybody to go where they're not ready to go but it helps me get a sense of what might be making things worse or, you know, be contributing to the other sort of presenting problems that they're, you know, open to discussing and talking about. So, yeah, they bring in, they bring in the safest issue that they feel comfortable talking about. And then once they feel validated, and this is all a lot of times, just not even really conscious in our brains, but once we feel validated, then we start opening up more and um, that's how we get to those deeper problems. So it makes perfect sense. And just to go back to that systems perspective, we're not taught how to talk about our health, our bodies at all, even just normal women, female body, uh, you know, even in sex ed, we barely learn what, what it means to be a a human boys and girls, um, all of us. Um, and so I think it's just so, it's so stigmatized to talk about anything that's underneath our clothing that, um, a lot of people just don't even know they're that they're allowed to talk about it. A lot of people don't even know they want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of therapists aren't equipped to talk about it, right? I mean, yeah. just like any other profession, I mean, I think there are therapists um, that are just, there's certain comfort areas or areas for them that, uh, that are just very uncomfortable and they're not able to kind of access those things. And I don't know, you know, if you've sort of had these experiences, even in your own therapy, but I have some memories, I mean, of just therapists that I've seen in the past who were wonderful therapists, and I had a really good relationship with them. But I remember just, um, I remember one just sort of when I wanted to talk about sex or something about sex or sexual history, um, that I said, I had to kind of stop and ask him, like, is it okay that I talk to you about this? And I remember, I'll always remember this. And again, I really loved this therapist. He was very helpful to me, but he said something like, yeah, as long as you don't give me too much detail. And I've thought about that over the years. And I thought how interesting that was because he was clearly having kind of his own countertransference towards me. Like perhaps they reminded me like his daughter, his niece or somebody, and he just didn't want to think about me in those ways. But I'm wondering how much was lost because of just that one sentence or how much it shut me down and perhaps how many times I've done something like that kind of unknowingly to somebody sort of like shut down or moved a conversation into a different direction because maybe it was something that I wasn't ready to, to think about. So yeah. patients should always, and I know you use the word client, I'm using the word patient. Mm-hmm. I use them interchangeably. So just for listeners, if they're like, why is she saying patient? And yeah, thanks for the that? distinction. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. good thing for people to know. For sure. It's just, yeah, it's just a, a preference. And mm-hmm. I'm in California and you're in Georgia, so I don't know. <laughs> so just for anyone listening, it's for me there, I use them equally and interchangeably. And I'm sure that there's uh, reactions to either word and, and those are fair and valid. Um, but just know that from the way I'm speaking, it's yeah. Client patient. It's the same yeah. exact thing to me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the clarification. Um, and it, just speaking of the topic of um, sexual health, that's another thing, you know, women are just, we're not allowed to talk about um, societally 
and then you add a chronic illness on top of it and there's fatigue and there's a lot of there's um, vag- even things like vaginal dryness and um, you know little things that you just don't think are important to talk about and your client like they don't know that it's important that it's even something they can talk about with you so um, until something is said somewhere that like gives them this little inkling like oh maybe that's a safe topic or maybe they dip their toe into it and like you said um, if you shift away from it it might tell them this isn't comfortable for me and we can't go here but if you kind of dip into it then um, and, and, you know, we're human, we make mistakes and sometimes it's not intentional at all. Like it could be a, a topic you're completely comfortable with, but maybe you had something else on your mind and then you shift that way. And, um, so, you know, that's our whole, this is the, her, our whole profession is just relationship. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's so, it is so challenging because any, facial expression, any shift you make, right, particularly if you're in person, can really sense, um, you know, whoever you're working with, a message that you're not intending to send, um, but the impact remains, right, and so I think our work is really um, challenging in that way, right, is that we're not just sort of sitting and listening, but it's this very active listening and knowing that every word, every yawn every you know like shifting of the body or movement is can mean something to somebody and it can it it can really impact the relationship and the therapy and most most importantly the patient themselves so yeah yeah um so how how would you say that you you help your patients feel um most validated or or how do you help them kind of navigate this journey the most? Is it through resources or through validation or through, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, hopefully it's a little bit of a lot of different things. Um, I think validation, particularly for this population is probably one of the most important things because at least with, you know, a lot of the the different women that I've worked with. So let me speak a little bit about that because that will sort of help yeah. inform how I'm answering this. So I work now really predominantly with women. And a lot of the women that I work with have had very, some have had very rare diseases, um, you know, that very small percentage of the population has suffered from. Just ones that I honestly couldn't even reiterate because the names are so long and I've just never heard of them otherwise. But um, that, and then I also work with women who have these really, sort of ubiquitously diagnosed diseases, but doctors don't know anything really about them or they're highly misinformed about them. So women aren't being properly treated and endometriosis and adenomyosis are two of you know those diseases that unfortunately way, the majority of, of the medical field is sadly really ill-informed and they're creating a lot of harm. So the validation piece is so important to me because I know from my patients and I know firsthand how quickly women's pain is dismissed, especially women of color, especially, especially black women. Um, So much so that their, you know, mortality rate is when they're pregnant is, is so significantly higher than the general population. I think it's like four to five times higher, which is insane. Yes, yeah, incredibly significant. And it's, it's just not okay. And I think that women in particular, you know, women's health, you know, it's not a top priority in terms of research, you know, and so women's medications, women's health, all these sorts of things are really 
um, they're just not a priority, even for female doctors, right? And so the money isn't there, the research isn't there, and therefore the information isn't there. And what I think happens, um, and I work with a lot of women doctors as well, particularly because of the pandemic, I've gotten a lot more calls from physicians that are really burnt out, understandably so. But because of that, I'm also sort of hearing from them occasionally that there is such a burnout that with that becomes a natural shift in empathy, right? Because they're so overwhelmed, overburdened that you kind of start to lose a little bit of that compassion that maybe brought them to the work to begin with. Um, yeah. And so, right, that then impacts each individual patient when they go in complaining of something and saying, I've got this pain and they can't figure out what it is. So it's kind of like dismissed. Well, maybe it's just psychological. Maybe you just have anxiety or here, take this birth control or here's this pill and, you know, I hope you get better kind of a thing. And, and I think a lot of doctors too, they don't necessarily hear back from patients because the patient doesn't trust them, doesn't want to go back. So then they mistakenly no believe they helped them well they didn't come yeah. back so they must have gotten healed yeah you know but no actually this person suffered and suffered and suffered and went to however many other doctors and specialists and perhaps they're still suffering until they get to an answer and sometimes you get to an answer and there's still no real treatment or cure or help it's just kind of a manage it the best you can um so sorry i'm no that's really a great um it didn't even feel like a, a tangent, just the word that comes to mind, but that was a great tangent. Um, and it made me think, yeah, doctors don't receive the, the feedback that they need in order to even um, progress or, or get better. And, and occasionally, so I encourage clients when they have experiences like this to write an email or to say something. Um, it doesn't matter if they respond or if they respond negatively, or it's just for the fact of the matter of uh, growing as a society and we need to be able to give feedback to each other. Um, and so even if, again, if a doctor is going to respond negatively or defensively, I still think it's so important that we advocate for ourselves in that way. And it can be really empowering to, um, you know, rather than just going from person to person to person and feeling like no one has ever heard you. Well, if you go back and you say, Hey, this was my experience with you. Well, they have no choice, but to listen. They have a choice whether they're going to validate you or not, but um, they most likely won't. <laughs> That's probably the reality of it. But there is a little bit of empowerment there, I believe, in being able to just speak your piece. And this was my story. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. And it's so important just for the healing process for each individual person, because really it's a trauma. You know what? I mean, it's multiple traumas, right? Um that you're navigating as you're going through all the pain of, of all the symptoms and then the daily, you know, things that you're having to navigate on top of, you know, then being dismissed um, or invalidated profoundly by someone in power who is, has kind of your care in their hands. So if you can go back and say, hey, someone did finally listen and guess what? It wasn't in my head and I do have this thing and it is a problem. And here are my records or here's, you know, the, that surgeon's, you know, information or what they found just for your, you know, in case you ever see this again, I think that's incredibly important for you, but also for the community at large, you might yeah. never know who else you're helping when you do that too. So it's yeah, a I think perfect way of putting it. Yeah. I think, um, 
especially as women, we're just very conditioned to not be confrontational, not be assertive. Um, and so I think that all goes hand in hand with it. And that's why there's, this is chronic illness is so, it's so complex and so complicated because it also goes hand in hand with our attachment styles and our experiences and our societal conditioning. And um, there's so many layers to it. And, and that, that's why I think therapy is a perfect place to talk about it, right? We uncover layers. That's just, that's what we do. And we, we unravel them and try to make as much sense as we can of them. Um, now, of course, there's different types of therapy solution focus, short-term, long-term. And if you ask me, these are long-term topics, um, which brings about whole conversation about accessibility, but, um, yes. you know, yeah, at, um, at the end of the day, it's, it is, it is important that, you know, whether you're in therapy or not, you're figuring out a way to unravel the different intersections that happen when you're mm -hmm. a person living with chronic illness. Totally. And what that just brought up for me is, um, I, so before the pandemic, which now feels like it was a hundred years ago, <laughs> um, is I, I ran a, a group for women with chronic medical conditions. And I cannot begin to tell you what that group, how special that group continues to be for me. I don't meet anymore because, you know, I just haven't found a safe way to do it online. Um, but I think what is often missing is that support and validation and hearing a lot of the things that feel like you're dealing with all by yourself that feel like unique to you or that nobody could possibly understand or at least nobody close to you if you can find a support group i think that is probably one of my top you know if i could give some like advice you know unsolicited advice i would say find a support group particularly for whatever condition it is that you have because you will feel so much more validated, way less alone. And you'll probably learn a lot of, you know, ways to advocate for yourself and um, just things to consider in your own treatment. So that I think has been just one of the best things that I've been able to be a part of. Um, and I've just seen how beneficial it is for patients across the board, just to have that community and those friendships with people that really as much as possible, get it, you know, as much as one can possibly get someone else's, you know, unique circumstances. So. Yeah. Support groups are, um, you know, especially run by a therapist who has that experience, whether personally or, you know, someone who just gets it from having worked in uh, with mm -hmm. this population for so long, you know, I, I don't believe you always have to have the, the personal experience, although it does help for sure. Um, it, it's, it can make all the difference because like you said earlier, when you've gone through it or when you just are comfortable with it, you're willing to have those conversations and, and you know what it's like to feel dismissed. So um, even it's, you're even more intentional about making sure you don't do that even by accident. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think support groups are such a wonderful way. Um, not only with a therapist who has, you know, has a, a comfort with it, with chronic illness, but also just hearing that you're not alone. And, and sometimes people have solutions that, you know, work for you that don't work for you, but someone else might have something that, and you can tweak it just a little bit. So there's a, a big dynamic there um, in group work that really leads to some, sometimes really quick change. Totally. And just access to resources or familiarity about certain resources that you didn't even know existed. 
um, that can be really helpful. You know, and for people that can't do in person or do find a group, it can be really hard to find a group, particularly just depending on where you live, right? And, you know, being in a big city, it's easier for me to say, like, join a group. And maybe some of our list, you know, the listeners that you have are, you know, rural or somewhere that there's just, you know, it's not available. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> but what I will say, one of Facebook's strengths, I'm sure there are many, but one that really stands out to me is the, amount of and the quality of the support groups that exist for almost every single living condition that's out there. I mean, the most rare thing, you put it in that search bar on Facebook and there will be a group for it. I'm not going to say it's going to be the best group ever, but there will be a group. And with that group, you will probably get access to things you didn't know that you had access to, which is pretty cool. Um, So that's another sort of area for people to look at that most people have it or have access to, to Facebook, I should say many people or most people have access to that as a resource. So, um, yeah, it's a good point. We've talked about this a couple of times, um, with different guests about Facebook groups and how they're just like, uh, really there are pros and cons for sure. Um, they can be a really awful place to be in if everybody's kind of on like a, that's true death train, you know, like, um, I talk about my own experience. It's like, going into a Lyme disease support group. And I thought, you know, it was right after my, my diagnosis. And I thought after reading some of the posts, like, oh my God, I'm going to die next week. Like this is going to be. And so I had to leave them quite, quite quickly, but um, I'm learning now that there are some higher quality ones and you do have to sift through them. And I want to say you have to kind of you have to work through that and recognize like when a, when a place is healthy for you and when it's not, but that's the whole, that's the whole thing sometimes is that we don't often know when we're in a healthy space or when something's good for us or not good for us and what's true or not true. And so learning to sift through information of any kind is a skill in and of itself. So just kind of recognizing that. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because really that's so important. And, um, it's true that those groups can be incredibly triggering as well, particularly if they're not managed well. And I think that's really the key is that the moderators really make or break a group. And some of those groups are disastrous because of that. And no offense to them, the moderators, because I'm sure they're busy and, you know, have a lot going on themselves, but, um, but that is key. Yeah. And if you are feeling like this is awful, I'm feeling worse then definitely leave that group um, or turn off notifications for a while. Um, But, you know, if there's something that you can get from that, I, I recommend finding some sort of a group wherever you can find it just to have different people to connect with and talk to about what you're going through because it'll really help you feel less alone. And I think that is sometimes what's most damaging about living with chronic medical conditions is the loneliness. Yeah. And I imagine that's been severely heightened with the pandemic um, for so many people. Yeah. Is that something that you find clients or or patients are talking about with you? Well, it's interesting because I, so it's been a little bit of a mixed bag. So it's also sort of shifted as the pandemic has really drawn out. Um, In the beginning of the pandemic, what I found was the majority of my, you know, severe chronically medically ill patients. These are patients that have like been close to death. I work with a lot of transplant patients um, as well. So, you know, a lot of those, those patients are really, they're just trying to survive. Like they're on a list waiting for an organ, right? A life-saving organ, Um, you know, or cancer patients or, you know, people that have really kind of knocked on death's door um, multiple times. 
who have had to live like this, right? The way that so many of us are just kind of learning like, whoa, I have to stay in my house and I can't do anything and I can't go anywhere and it's not safe and I have to wear a mask, right? That, that I had a couple of patients um, say, I hope, can I use bad words on this? Or would yeah. you rather I not? <laughs> um, you know, like, fuck you. Like, this is welcome to my life. You know, I've, this is how I've had to live every day. And now you're getting a glimpse of it. And you haven't even done this for 30 days and you're already falling apart. And yet maybe, you know, some of these people were judged in the past by the people that are now complaining to them. So I've seen that. Um, so there was, I think for some, and I'm not saying everyone, but there was almost like a, hmm, you know, like now you kind of, now you kind of get it. And now it's kind of nice because everyone's sort of, I'm, I don't feel alone anymore. Like everyone's sort of in the same, well, I wouldn't say the same boat, but maybe in the same sea, right? The same storm, yeah. um, you know, and maybe a different kind of a boat. But I, I think that part was sort of healing for some. Um, and then I'm just seeing the fatigue and fatigue and fatigue, particularly as you know, I'm thinking of, of uh, actually a really dear friend of mine who suffers from a variety of comorbidities, some of which have not even really been properly or fully diagnosed yet, but she also suffers from Lyme disease. And, um, you know, she has a young child too, and has been navigating this pandemic since day one, she has not shifted her protocol, like she has remained steadfast in, I'm not going to I'm not going to be responsible for infecting anybody else. And I'm not going to compromise my health or my child's health who can't get vaccinated yet. And so she is understandably very angry because she's seeing so many people become more and more lax as they're navigating things because everybody is, you know, exhausted by this. And a lot of people, you know, they got vaccinated and boosted. And so maybe they're feeling a little bit more secure, doing new things, trying new things. And she's sort of feeling left behind when she's yeah. seeing all these people, people who she loved and cared for, not doing the things that she's having to do. And she's having a lot of feelings about that. And I think as a result, probably some shifts and conflict in some of her relationships and some frustration. And honestly, even probably some frustration with me as she's seeing me kind of go out into the world and do little things with my kids. Um, mm. And so I do, I imagine that a lot of people that I'm working with are also kind of going through that, those waves of emotions of just like exhaustion and anger and fatigue and with also the sense of, but there's nothing I can do about it. I have to continue doing things this way until there's some sort of a, a cure or until there's more sort of like herd immunity or whatever it is that we're needing for this yeah. to shift. And it's so hard to know, right? Because we don't know. That, and that, so that level of uncertainty just makes it that much worse. We don't know what we even need, let alone when we're going to get it. Yes. And yes. I, it's I, constant, yeah. Day to day, you know, limbo. Um, yeah. I, mean, I think living in limbo for chronically medically ill patients, particularly people who are either waiting for some sort of medicine or waiting for a diagnosis, that limbo has now sort of bled into every fabric of their lives. And that is deeply painful, frustrating. Uh, and I'm probably putting that very lightly angering, you know, yeah. just all the things. Um, so yes, it's, it's all fair and valid and understandable, but I'm sure it's feeling really lonely and um, people are really at their breaking points. So 
Yeah. And that's, um, I talk a lot about acceptance on this podcast and, and try to differentiate what, what that means each and every time I use the word, because, um, there's a couple of different directions you can go from where we're at in this conversation. One is like, how do you cope with it? How do you manage it? Um, which sometimes depending on what situation you're in might feel a little bit like gaslighting. Like, what do you mean cope with it or, or deal with it? Like, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. This is a societal issue right now or, and, and acceptance, same thing. It can feel a bit um, dismissive. Um, mm-hmm. It's not accepting that things are the way they are. And so we just are okay with it. It's, can you accept your frustration and your anger and these negative emotions that once again, a lot of women we're societally programmed not to be angry people or to Mm -hmm. display our anger in any way. And if we do, then we're labeled emotional or, um, not taken seriously. And, and so the acceptance piece is, can you feel the anger that you're feeling and not judge yourself for it? Because this is an incredibly frustrating and trying time. Right. Well, and I'm thinking too of like black indigenous and just women of color in general, right? That then that also we can extend that further to say when we express some sort of a negative emotion, we're also seen as aggressive or dangerous or something else that's, you know, um, can put our lives in danger. Um, and so that's also just adds an extra challenge that's, you know, it's kind of like it feels impossible to breathe sometimes, um, you know, I imagine. So yeah, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And, um, I, my hope is that, you know, by having this part of the conversation that more people recognize how normal it is for, um, that anger, especially for people of color, um, and that it's not dangerous and that it's not, uh, something to be fearful of, but it's something to just recognize. Like when someone's angry, we need to, as a society, learn how to look at them and say, what's going on for you? not mm-hmm. calm down. You need to stop and you're dangerous and we need to stop you. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. Yeah. You know, anger is a secondary emotion that so many people don't want to feel and don't want to expose themselves to when someone else is feeling it. And yeah. there's so much that's missed in that because, you know, what's underneath all anger is pain, you know? And I also just think about, you know, you talked about attachment earlier and, um, the way that, you know, our sort of early caregivers help us understand like what emotions are safe to sort of convey and, and how, how to convey them and how not to, and, um, how that makes people really shut down when they're, when they're in pain and how they can push help away from them, um, significantly and how it's really hard to be vulnerable and sort of, just sort of say like I'm not well I need help and it can be easier to just be like oh just leave me alone yeah. um yep. you know because it's scary to ask for help and I think this population um has had to do that more than most or many um you it know, makes me and- think you know aside from just um or their early caregiver experiences also then maybe co- as an immigrant coming into this country and now everything that you knew to be okay in how you expressed yourself in one country is completely uh, wrong in another country mm-hmm. um, and how that can even really throw off your, your attachment style, even as an adult um, and really like cause that further like distrust in yourself and society and how many, you know, more layers we could probably go into there as well. 
No, totally. And particularly with the language component, you know, because when you think about how you express yourself when you feel most vulnerable, imagine doing that and not your primary language. It's really hard to do. It's very hard to like uh, just share what you want to share or express yourself in a meaningful way because there's so much that's being missed. You're trying to figure out how to say the words that you want to say and the proper way to say them grammatically or otherwise. And there's so much that gets missed, I think, for so mm -hmm. many people. And um, I think about that a lot just the missed moments um yeah. just in everyday interactions with people and I don't know I think we just have to think about that in our work so much that for me that just transfers into just kind of the the real world and just little interactions with people um and how what what each person's sort of navigating and living through and how we uh bump bump into each other during all those moments and what that might sort of be like um I don't know. I'm just no. Yeah. The missed moments is, I think it's something I think about a lot too, in, in different way, many, many different contexts, um, mm -hmm. even in, in relationships with your partner or with your friends, or, um, you know, we were talking earlier about chronic illness and how, or, or just the conversations in therapy and how we might shift in one way or another accidentally. And that's a missed moment or, um, yes. and these missed moments are, are, just as impactful even if you never notice them and they really shape yep. the way that we see the world around us yep yeah and how how we respond to the world around us as a result yeah. of how we see it right um it's just it's complicated right <laughs> yeah I think it's good to to process through this because um so often the conversation is just like what can you control versus what you can't control mm -hmm. or or the conversation is like okay, well, you're the only one who can make a change. So what are you going to do about it? Or on the flip side, the conversation is, you know, you shouldn't have to make any changes because society is the issue at large. The system is the issue, issue at large. And it's just so much more nuanced than that. And I think the conversation that we just had, you know, maybe there's no step one, step two, clear delineation of the, here's the problem. Um, right. But it really speaks to that, to that, uh, those nuances. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking um, one last kind of question that I've got for you is what kind of, you know, a lot of what we talked about is some heavy stuff and some hard stuff and also really important to bring out and let people know, like, these are safe things to talk about, even if they are really hard and heavy. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what are some of your favorite moments with clients? What makes all of this work worth it for you? Mm. Oh, gosh. I love that question. Um, it probably is hard to go from like, we were really heavy just to like switch into maybe something more positive, but. Um, yeah. Well, but even in the positive, I think for me, there's still a heaviness there because I, you know, um, I, so I, I just was asked to, uh, to, to write for this community event that, that's a artists building community is what the, the platform is on Instagram, for example. It's run by a friend of mine, Natasha Ridley. And she asked me to be one of the artists. I usually photograph these events for her when they're done in the community because I, I do photography on the side. So, so she asked me this time to actually be one of the artists, which was interesting. And it was about grief. Um, so she's had a really tough year. Like her dad died. I'm not sure 
how or of what I never asked, but it was during COVID. And I, she knew I lost eight family members um, oh. since COVID hit, not all from COVID four out of the eight were from COVID um, so far. One was my grandmother just recently, and she was just one of the most important, if not like the most important person in my life. Um, so I wrote this whole thing. And in writing about grief, grief is one of my specialty areas, you know, and it's, it's in everything, right? I mean, it's definitely in this population, like there's so much grief to just losing your health, you know, or losing your mental health um, or both. And um, I was thinking about my, my work and the gifts that I, the gifts, plural, that I get from people every single time I go to work. Um, you know, I think a lot of people come to us, you know, for help and to feel better, but they don't realize how much they make us feel better and how much they help us, um, and the gifts that they give and how many times I've come home and just been like, I'm so lucky I get to do this, or this person just impacted me in such a profound way. And maybe we can't share that because it's not appropriate for different reasons. Um, but I don't have like one necessarily specific thing that I can just say like, this is the thing that, you know, but it's, it's all the little things. It's the, the different things I learn about. It's, it's how much my mind has been opened. It's how much I get to continue to grow as a result of other people growing and healing. Um, and in some cases, how much I'm getting to heal because I'm watching somebody else heal. And sometimes I hear myself and I think, well, I should probably do that too. <laughs> the thing that I'm recommending that you do or think about, I'm like, maybe I need to think about that or maybe I need to do that. And it's helpful because I then see someone else do it. Maybe it makes me feel braver to do it or maybe it makes me um, advocate for people suffering from that thing that I didn't know about before and now I know about it. So I'm going to do better, be better too. So yeah, I mean, I think... I guess I just want, yeah, people listening to know that you also, like, this is not really a one-way street. It's, it's a really unique relationship, right? Where the focus is on you and, you know, hopefully isn't on the therapist and it's just about the patient, but we get so much from this work um, that, that feeds our souls truly. Um, and I'm just really grateful for everyone that's walked into my life in this way, even if it hasn't been a good fit because I've grown and learned and they've helped me hopefully be better. So, um, yeah, one, I might just want to start with my deepest condolences for you and your family and, and everything you. that you've lost over the last two years. Um, I can't imagine how incredibly difficult that's been. And also, um, to the point of, you know, our clients and patients helping us as well. It's yes. Yeah. The relationship is it's, bi-directional it's it is mostly focused on the person the other person in the room the client the patient um but we do when we learn and we grow especially if that's a value you hold which I would go out on a limb to say most therapists hold that value that's we're we're open to learning we're open to growing that's a big part of why we're called to this work um and so and and you can only do that in relationship with others so yeah um they give us that. I, I feel that as well with my own clients and many of them. Yeah. will never know how much they've impacted me as well. So I, I can relate to that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, anything else that kind of comes to mind that you just want people to know or to take away from this conversation? Hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I think, uh, just the importance of advocating for yourself with your medical care and your psychological care, right? Just that knowing that there could be the best specialists in the world, but if they don't make you feel heard and seen, then they're not going to be the best specialist for you. Um, and I, and I think, you know, just like with therapy, it's really just about the fit. So sometimes it doesn't matter how many degrees or where someone trained or who they trained under, you know, that can be important in certain senses, but most importantly, it's just how you feel safe in the room. So if you don't feel safe with your doctors or anyone that's providing care for you in any of the things you're getting care for, whether it's your acupuncturist or whatever you're doing for your care, right? Um, for your treatment, then, then find somebody else because there will be somebody who will listen to you and don't waste your very precious time on the people who, who aren't. Now I say that. And I also recognize that there are certain people that are going to be listening and saying, that's great, Anna, except I can't do that because of my circumstances, right? Where I live or who I have access to or financial constraints or all the things, right? And so for that, I'd say inform yourself as much as you can and continue and continue and continue to advocate for yourself as best you can or find somebody who can help be that advocate for you and with you. Um, because you're not wrong and you're not lying. It's not in your head. <laughs> and, um, you know, you deserve the care and yeah. um, you deserve to heal and get better. So, and I hope for that, for everybody listening, that they can find that. So. I think that's such a great message. And Um, it's clear how much uh, passion and empathy you have for this population. So I'm thrilled to know that you're available for, for clients and and that um, people can, can find you in that way. Cause I think, like you said earlier, it's a lot of therapists don't, um, we just aren't trained in in the medical aspect of um, the body and what that looks like and how that, that can, how that can actually come out in the therapy room. So I'm, I'm thrilled to know that people can find you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'd say when you're looking for a provider, if you don't have a psychologist or therapist yet, and you want one, look for someone with a behavioral medicine specialty or background, because chances are they've worked in those settings and they know what you're navigating, or they have a much better sense than maybe somebody who has never, you know, had a medical issue or let alone been in that sort of a setting, that might be just a good little hint or tip for people as they're maybe searching. Um, And you might have other wording that you would use. That's just the wording that comes to mind with my background, but there might be other words that you might want to include in there to think for them to think about when they're sort of looking for a provider. And perhaps you've covered this. Yeah, no, I I think that's behavioral medicine, I think is a great addition to the, the verbiage that I use. I I tend to refer people to depending on what, you know, if I know what they're really looking for, I might lean more towards um, sending them towards like an acceptance and commitment therapist or, Mm -hmm. uh, or somatic therapist, or um, I think a behavioral medicine is another really great addition to that. So thank you so much, so much. Best of luck to you, Destiny, on your. (laughs) 
If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.